that. If it weren't for that opportunity, there'd be no hope for any of us, would there? Let me invite your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I've been preparing for about six weeks for the message last Wednesday night and this because of its current uh, interest and my desire to be careful and uh, biblical in everything I say. But before I get into it uh, and segue to the message, I want to remind you of our Harvest Crusade with Ronnie Hill, November 1st to the 4th. We will precede that the week before with a series of prayer meetings starting Monday morning with staff and then um, Tuesday with women. If they'll come at 8.30, they can go to Bible study that morning with some great women's enrichment ministry Bible studies that we do on Tuesday mornings. And then on Wednesday with our men, uh, Thursday with Sunday school teachers and uh, church leaders, and then Friday, I'd like for all the parents of children and teenagers that can be here to come during that time. Realize you can't make all of those, some of you can't make any of them, but it's very important that we plead and cry out to God for a mighty movement in the lost community, in our community. I want us to pray that way because starting November 1st, on Sunday morning going through Wednesday evening, November 4th, we will do all we can to organize this event around those who do not know Christ as Savior. Uh, those of you have been praying for and pleading with God for, we want to reach out to them during that time. Every worship service, beginning Sunday morning through Wednesday night, will be preceded with a pre-service meeting. Pre-service on Sunday morning, of course, is Sunday school. Your Sunday school classes will be setting a contact goal to observe the week before and then we'll do worship with Ronnie Hill. And then Sunday night, our students will meet about six o'clock. In fact, all these pre-service meetings in the evening will be at six, worship service at seven, and then uh, we, will, we will do that, observe that. Every evening at six o'clock, a pre-service meeting with a specified group that is in your worship guide, and then a service for all the generations, multi-generational worship service uh, for, uh, at seven o'clock. Want you to do all that you can to be a part of that. Monday and Tuesday nights, I'm needing our ladies and our men to bust the building in honor of Building B. We've got good news on that, but the wind apparently busted our building and the roof uh, system in Building B back in August when Tommy Fountain here, or Tommy Fountain Sr. did it himself. But uh, in any case, I want us to pack the place out those two evenings, and you've got an insert in your worship guide this morning to help us with that. And if you'll sign up for that, I would greatly appreciate that, especially those of you that were a part of that back in August. You did a marvelous job, and I need your experience and your efforts again in um, the week leading up to November 1st of the 4th. In order for us to advance this as we'd like, we need to have confidence that God's Word is true on the issues. Uh, the particular issue we're addressing this morning undermines confidence. And that leads me to say that my topic this morning is sex o'clock in America, hope for the struggle with homosexuality. And I want to address this biblically from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. I want to do that by beginning to tell you of a story when I was in college. I was outside my apartment in Marshall, Texas, and found a young man sitting on a curb. It's kind of unusual in Marshall, Texas to find anyone sitting on a curb but he was despondent and downcast, and I want to encourage you, anytime you find someone alone that appears to be downcast, do not ignore them, but approach them and offer your friendship and prayers and uh, the gospel of Christ. And so I sat down with him and talked with him and found out that he was a homosexual young man. 
and his partner had just kicked him out in a big fight. I think that there was some physical violence involved. And so I'd sat down and sympathized with him and talked with him. And he was quite surprised when I told him I was a ministerial student at East Texas Baptist University. He didn't expect me to have uh, that kind of spirit towards him, and I didn't know why I wouldn't. Jesus was kind to me. I don't know why I couldn't be kind to someone else. And so I shared the gospel with him and spoke to him. He, uh, he was really too discombobulated to comprehend and, and to focus on that. It was, so, it was so emotional at the time. And he didn't have a place to go. He was homeless that evening, so I invited him uh, to uh, my apartment to stay with my roommate and me. And uh, I took his number, and he said, well, let me think about it. And I told him I would get back with him by phone. And I went to my roommate at the time, a fine young Christian man uh, that uh, spoke to him and told him the story. And it really surprised me and shocked me. My roommate was very unwilling to do that. Now, look, I didn't have a family. I wasn't married at the time. I was single. At that time, 30 years ago, we could afford to bring strangers into our cars and homes, especially in East Texas. And uh, that's, that's just what we did. We weren't always very careful, quite reckless at times, but I, I didn't sense that was the case there. I thought God wanted to love him and have compassion on him and uh, to take care of his needs and to introduce him to the love and transforming power of Jesus Christ to help him escape impurity and sin and judgment and uh, to do that in Jesus Christ. But it really broke my heart that my roommate was not very compassionate. In fact, he was quite adamant the reason it was is that I suspect he saw that there was no hope for the young man. No hope for change and no hope from him. I don't know if he thought the fellow had cooties or what, but it was going to get all over him. He was terribly uncomfortable with that. And I didn't understand that, especially in light of the passage that we have here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9. Here Paul offers those who are caught up in sexual immorality, beginning in verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. Homosexuals here happen to be the dominant partner in the homosexual relationship. Sodomites end up being the passive, excuse me, it's the exact opposite. Homosexual in this text happens to be the passive partner in the relationship. Sodomites happen to be the... Uh, dominant partner in the relationship, at least in the first century as those relationships went. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God in Christ, the homosexual can ha have hope and find hope for victory over sin and everything else that accompanies impurity. Where does God offer hope? Well, in this text, we find several places where God offers hope. The first is in His disposition. Look at God's disposition in verses 9 through 10. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he goes on to list sexual immorality. He goes on to list financial impropriety. He goes on to list um, a variety of other vices, not just sexual immorality, that when people, it's clear that they are practicing this habitually, not occasionally, but habitually, it is clear they've never been born again or come to Christ. They're evidencing that by their deep habitual practice 
of these sins. And in case you missed it, Paul said in verse 9, do not be deceived. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. You need to understand, this is God's disposition when it comes to homosexuality and sexual immorality. And he mentions homosexuality and the other sexual practices here as the exclusionary of the kingdom of God in the same breath that he mentions thieves and the covetous, the drunkard, the reviler, extortioners, those who cheat people out of their wealth. He mentions these all together in the same breath. And that leads me to say, God plays no favorites. God has no favorite sins at all. And so, God will not condemn the thief and then wink at and let the homosexual pass by. No matter the atmosphere of political correctness in a nation. But at the same time, God will not give the thief a pass and uh, then condemn the homosexual. The truth is, whatever offends his holiness, whether it's gossip or an impure thought, or whether it is the sexual practice of homosexuality, receives the condemnation of God. And if God doesn't play favorites, we don't play favorites either. We do not bully homosexuals or others. We do not joke about them. And we do not use vulgar language about homosexuality. I would say also to you, I, I may do this at times, I'll try to clean up my language, but I don't use the word gay for that community either. I was an English minor, and my day gay meant happy and not changing the definition of the word. I think that that euphemizes something that is very tragic and hurtful, and so I will use biblical language. Having said that, I've never been able to bring myself to make jokes about homosexuals. I've never been able to use some of the vulgar, nasty terms. Maybe not profanity, but the nasty terms some people use that I'll not mention from the pulpit. And so because God doesn't play favorites, let me say to our homosexual friends this. You may attend Beach Haven Baptist Church on the same terms everyone else attends. You've got to behave socially like everyone else. We don't want any PDA, and we don't want you to advocate homosexuality here. You may be in a prayer meeting or in a Sunday school class, and you may want to admit, I'm struggling with this, that's perfectly fine. But as far as disagreeing with God's word on that, there's no place here for that. There is freedom of speech in the congregation, but only within the boundaries of the word of God. God is the final authority, and he regulates the speech in the congregation. You'll have to speak about these issues as if you were in the pulpit preaching and teaching the Bible. And so, but you're welcomed here on the same terms everyone else is. In other words, you're welcomed here just like the adulterer, the extortioner, and others are. We cannot let the adulterer argue in favor of adultery. We can't let the extortioner argue in favor of extortion. If there's a problem there, we will help take care of it. You are welcome to attend here for members who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Let me say to you, you are welcome to be a member here on the same terms as everyone else. You don't get special favors, but you also don't get special restrictions either. Our members need to receive Christ as Savior, be baptized in the name of the triune God. They need to make a good faith effort to overcome sin, and they've got to agree with God in His Word, no matter what the sin. And so whether it's my sin or anyone else's, we're really all the same in many ways. Now, I don't want to make the mistake of saying all sin is the same without qualifying it. 
there is some truth to that. All of it offends the holiness of God and puts us on bad footing and condemned footing before God. However, not all sin has the same destructive consequences. And homosexuality is terribly destructive. If you'll just go to the Center for Disease Control website and enter in gay and bisexual health, you'll have a number of sites that will come up that will show you uh, federal government research on that, and it's heartbreaking to read that. I worry about my homosexual friends and their health, and when I have the opportunity to speak with them, I urge them to make sure that they are healthy. And that is a primary issue in the homosexual literature, in the magazines. And most of those, the better magazines, if we can say that, there is a health page speaking of the health of homosexual persons. And I want them to take care of their health because homosexuality is terribly destructive. We covered that Wednesday night. But if you're a member and you're struggling with that, that's okay. But you've got to understand you're welcome here as a member on the same terms everyone else is. Now, that's not going to please the crowd outside the church, but we're not here for that. We are not trying to poke our finger in their eye. I don't have that in me to do, but I do want to please God, and I'm certainly not poking a finger in His eye, nor is Beach Haven Baptist Church. So God will not play favorites, but there's another thing here as well. Here we're talking about inheriting in the future the kingdom of God. This implies a judgment day, and I am terribly concerned about the judgment day of homosexual friends. My job and the job of churches is to make that day a happy day, not a horrible day. And with the practice of sexual immorality or thievery or covetousness or extortion, it is guaranteed and assured that day is going to be an awful day and then it just gets worse for eternity. And so I need to let my church know and my friends know I am not in a disposition to approve of homosexual practice and I'm willing to stand there and I'm willing to take the cost and take the hit if necessary from anyone because I cannot bend because if I bend, I make that day a horrible day for my homosexual friends and I'm not doing it. And I don't believe our church is either. My job is to make that a better day in Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you, if you are advocating for the homosexual lifestyle and some of the things that go with it in our nation now, you are making that day worse for other people. If you are in a homosexual relationship, you're making it a worse day for your partner. It's time to repent and stop and begin to look at judgment day because it's coming. And it's the pulsating, throbbing message of the Word of God. And so that leads me to this conclusion. The most loving position we can take is the biblical position. The best friends homosexuals have are like people in this congregation who will gently and lovingly but forthrightly tell the biblical truth. We are the best friends they have. This position is the most loving position. The pro-homosexual and LGBT position is the most harmful position because there is a day coming when all men and women must give reckoning to God. This, according to verses 9 and 10, is the disposition of God. There's hope in that because God's going to tell you the truth and the truth will set you free. But there's a second place where there is hope and that is in transformation. My New Testament professor in seminary was Dr. J.W. McGorman, Jack McGorman. He was a native of Nova Scotia, Canada. His father was a pastor, but he had a terrible lung disease that developed and he was hospitalized for a good number of months. And while in the hospital, he developed an addiction to painkillers. 
And before reading verse 11 in our 1 Corinthians class, Dr. McGorman explained just what it was like to have an addiction to painkillers. Oh, it was heartbreaking. And in his Scottish brogue, he was able to elaborate upon that. And he talked about his intense desire, his obsession with having these painkillers and how guilty he felt about it. How he was out of control and could not, he didn't feel, could control his longings and his urgings for painkiller. He turned himself over to the Lord and said God came through and rescued him. And he told that story right before he read verse 11. And I want you to read it with me carefully. And such were some of you. That's one of the most happy and helpful past tenses in all of literature and language. Such were some of you. You were that. You were what you find in verses 9 and 10. But in Jesus Christ, you can talk about it now as if it is in the past tense. Why? Because here's what by the Spirit Jesus Christ has done. You were washed. In other words, you have a transformed nature. Your heart and soul long for that sexual intimacy in a sinful way or long for that addiction or long for that sin. But Jesus Christ has come in and he has washed you of the guilt that is associated with that. I want to say to you that if you're struggling with same-sex attraction and homosexual behavior, our goal is not necessarily, and I don't want to confuse you here, our goal is your purity and celibacy, not necessarily attraction to other women. That is not always necessary. In fact, Matthew 19, Jesus talked about the gift of singleness and celibacy, and that may be where God wants you. And so you do not have to go all that direction, but what you must do is be sexually pure, and the Bible teaches that sexuality is only appropriate between a man and a woman married to one another. Our goal is that, and God can wash you that way. Then, sanctified. Not only can you have a transformed nature, nature but a transformed purpose. It may surprise you if you're struggling with anything in verses 9 and 10. It might surprise you, but did you know God can use you? Well, I'm not qualified. Well, of course you're not. Neither are the rest of us. Oh, no, you're not qualified at all. But listen to me carefully. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. It's what God does. And God can lift you up and wash you uh, thoroughly and cleanse you and make you as white as snow. And He'd love to do that through Jesus Christ. And He can do that. And then He can turn you around and set you on fire like He did Dennis Jernigan 30 years ago. Dennis Jernigan was immersed in the homosexual lifestyle. He came to Jesus Christ. He's married. He's got nine children now. That may not be necessary for you, but he has been, for the last 20, 25 years, one of the leading Christian recording artists for worship music and has exalted Jesus powerfully and mightily now for 30 years through his gifts. Christ can do that because he can set you aside and sanctify you for his purposes. Then justified. Well, there's a transformed nature through washing, transformed purpose through sanctification, and then a transformed status. Without Jesus Christ, all the earth stands guilty and condemned before a God that is furious with sin because of the disgrace and indignity it's brought to his son and to his holiness. But God is willing to wipe all of that away and give you a pure standing before him and to accept you. If you're struggling with some of these things, you, uh, you may have been rejected by your family. 
You may have been rejected by friends. You may have had your heart broken by some of the ugly, nasty things people have said about you. But I want to tell you, there's a Father in heaven who crucified His only begotten Son so that you can be cleansed and accepted in the Beloved and have the same favor and the same love and the same joy and the same intimacy and closeness with the Father that Jesus Christ Himself experiences. You can be a co-heir with Jesus Christ because of the promises of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so there is hope in your justification. In chapter 6, verse 14, look there. He said, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. He refers to victory here in terms of resurrection. And just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, so you can be raised out of your sin. In other words, he says, he even says in Romans 6, 11, that he who gave life to Jesus and raised him from the dead can also give life to your mortal bodies. The same power that, is that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the very power available to you to overcome anything that has bound you up. And God wants to give it to you. And God can. He loves you and he wants to do that. And so he can transform a lustful heart into a serving heart and weakness into strength and guilt into praise for him. There's hope in disposition and transformation. There's also hope in clarification. Verses 12 through 14, Paul references some of the popular sayings in Corinth. He spent 18 months there. He knew what was on the streets. And one of these statements is in verse number 12. They would say popularly on the street in Corinth, excusing their sins, Oh, all things are lawful for me. And, and then they would make another statement in verse 13. Foods for the stomach and stomach for foods. In other words, it's quite natural to eat, so it's quite natural just to have sex any way you want to. It was their reasoning. But Paul counters the world and stands against that world, the first century world, with a couple of other standards. He says, well, it may be true that uh, in Roman society in Corinth, all things may be lawful for you, but all things are not helpful. And I would ask that about sexual immorality. I, I don't, uh, don't mean to go Dr. Phil on you, but how's that working for you? What about the health consequences and the chaos and the lack of peace? And then he goes on to say, all things are lawful for me, they would say, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. Most likely, if you're engaged in the difficulties of verses 9 and 10, you're probably enslaved. Well, I'm not enslaved, you say. Well, then knock it off. You probably can't on your own. You're going to need the supernatural intervention of Jesus Christ, and, and He'll give it to you. But you have to come to Him on His terms. Well, here's the other statement. Foods for the stomach and stomach for the foods. In verse 13, that was a popular saying. It's just natural to eat, and so it's natural to have sex any way that you want to. But Paul said, wait, God will destroy both it and them. He said, hold on a minute. The body is not for sexual immorality. Now, there is some truth. The body is made for food. It needs it. But the body is not made for any kind of sexual experience. It is not made for sexual immorality. It is made for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So Paul clarifies some things here. Let me clarify something for you right now. What I'm about to say may be a bit strange, and it is countercultural, just as countercultural as verses 12, 13, and 14. I do not buy into the sexual orientation theory 
In fact, there's some gay authors that don't buy into it either. The Scripture leads me then to this conclusion. If you're struggling with same-sex attraction and involved in homosexuality, you are not gay. God does not acknowledge that identity. Government entities may, private organizations may, heaven does not. And I don't want you to consider yourself gay. That is the first step in the wrong direction. I want to say also to you, you are not weird. You are not strange. You are not unlovable at all. And you're certainly not gay. Do you know what you are? You're like the rest of us. And so I don't want you to feel like you're on the outside. I don't want you to feel like you're distant from the rest of us. You really are just like the rest of us. You're not gay. You're not weird. You're not strange. You are tempted, is what you are. That is the orientation. And then, not only that, but internally, you also have a sinful nature that is conspiring with the world and demonic forces to trip you up. Well, hey, that's the way it is with all of us. And I want to say to you, welcome to the human race and to Beach Haven. Our sins may not be the ones that you're struggling with, but my goodness, we've got plenty to struggle with ourselves. And I've discovered through the years that many people have at least one thing that trips them up, and it's tough. I had a dear pastor that I admired when I was in college who, before he really gave himself to Christ and God called him to the ministry, was terribly addicted to tobacco. He was one of the most powerful preachers I know, went into evangelism, and God used him mightily. But he said, there's some days I just crave a cigarette so badly it's embarrassing. And I'm thinking, that little old thing has got that much power over you? And you're a man of God. And, and he was. And as far as I know, he never compromised and never gave in to that little thing. And then another pastor I was dear friends with uh, had a significant time in his adult, his adult life when he, he did not honor his marriage vows. He was immoral. God saved him and cleaned him up. He went into the ministry. And for more than 40 years now, he has been faithful to his wedding vows and his marriage vows. But he confessed to me, every time I approach a woman, I have to, I have to transform my thinking and think of her as a sister in Christ, as someone else's wife and not a target. That's what I have to do. These two men of God that mentored me and taught me and exemplified for me the way of Christ had something they struggled with. They knew Greek, they knew Hebrew, they knew the Bible backwards and forwards. They won people to Jesus Christ and they built churches and they still had something in their soul that was trying to conspire with the world and demonic powers to trip them up, but they were victorious. I want to tell you, welcome to Beach Haven. Welcome to the family. If that's what you're struggling with, you are welcome here on God's terms. So there's some clarification that needs to take place. But then verses 15 to 17 talk about unification. Unification. 
Verses 15 to 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members or parts of Christ? Body parts of Christ. Shall I then take the members or parts of Christ and make them members of a harlot? There were religious ceremonies in Corinth where they would do that very thing. Not in the Christian church, but in the pagan temple. Certainly not. Do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. So here is the strange and odd and shocking reality. You're one with Jesus Christ, but then you become one with a harlot. Wait a minute. You're one with Christ and one with a harlot. Verse 17. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Do you see the picture? When you come to Jesus Christ as Savior, God makes you one spirit with him, with Christ. And so everywhere you go, Jesus goes. Everything you and I do, Jesus does. Jesus never severs himself from us. And so for the Christian who engages in the vices of verses 9 and 10, you've got to understand how scandalous and outrageous that is. You've got to understand this. And this is actually going to help you when you face temptation. This is why we're telling. I'm not trying to heap a bunch of guilt on you. I don't know if I could, even if I tried. But uh, this is going to fortify you against temptation. Whenever we involve ourselves in any action and behavior, even the vices in 9 and 10, we are imposing these upon Jesus Christ, and we are forcing Jesus to be a part of this. And so the one that engages in thievery or extortion is forcing Jesus to be a thief and extortioner. The one who engages in sexual immorality is forcing the Son of God to endure that experience. And I've got to ask, is that how you want to treat your very best friend and your master and the one who loves you? Now, this is going to fortify you against temptation. And that leads us to well, I'm running out of time here. But it leads us to integration. Verse 18. One preacher said one time, Show me your friends, and I will show you your future. That's true. Whoever your friends are, you will eventually become like. Verse 18. Look what he says. Flee sexual immorality. Do you know that the pronouns and the verbs here are in the second person. Paul is not merely speaking to an individual. Paul is speaking to an entire church family and the non-Christians that are assembled among them. Ladies and gentlemen, God never imagined you overcoming sin alone. He wants you into a church family. He wants you integrated. Now, I need to tell you, if you're going to overcome the vices listed in verses 9 through 10, especially sexual immorality, it's probably going to cost you. You're probably going to have to give up some friends. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise shall be wise, but the companion of fools shall suffer destruction. That's probably what will happen. And I want to tell you, as you fall, Beach Haven is here to catch you. 
And that's what we will do. Men, you really, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, you need a group of men that you can walk with in purity. That's probably most likely what you'll need. Not that there's anything wrong with relationships with women, but oftentimes in the background there's the need for that. And women, if you're struggling with same-sex attraction, you probably need a group of women where you have pure relationships. That leads me to the final consideration in verses 18 through 20, quickly. There is hope also in elevation. I want you to imagine someone coming by this property and offering us six or seven million dollars to purchase it. And their goal is not worship, education, or to turn it into a fine arts center. Let's say they offer it with the express purpose of turning it into a brothel. Say that it becomes legal in Georgia. And they think this would be a great place for a brothel. And the primary feature will be the worship center here. Can you imagine how scandalous that would be? How heartbreaking? Well, of course we wouldn't sell it. But can you imagine anyone imagining a place like this becoming a brothel? God gave you a body so that you would treat it like a place of worship, but engaging in sexual immorality turns your body, which is a temple, into a brothel. The average heterosexual in America has at least four partners. And at the very least, the CDC and other sources say the average homosexual has at least 50, and that's the low end of the estimates. Friends, whenever we engage in sexual immorality, usually promiscuity accompanies that, and we are a temple of God, and we are not to become a brothel, but a place that glorifies God, much like a place of worship glorifies God. So what the temple is to God, your body is to his spirit. There is hope in Jesus Christ for overcoming. Eugene Land is a millionaire, and he was charged with speaking to a sixth grade class in East Harlem, New York. He began to speak and really set aside his notes. He was speaking to 59 sixth graders and was to give them hope and urge them to graduate from school. The vast majority of kids in this neighborhood would not finish high school. And so he spoke from his heart. And here's what he said. He said, stay in school and I'll help pay college tuition for every one of you. Stay in school and I'll help pay college tuition for you. One student said, I had something to look forward to after Mr. Land spoke. Something waiting for me. It was a golden feeling. These kids were given hope that they could go beyond high school and that their efforts and their labors in elementary school and junior high school and high school would be meaningful and do something and open up doors in their lives. And 90% of those 59 sixth graders graduated from high school and Mr. Land helped fund them all the way through school. Jesus Christ is saying, though you stand guilty before God and your environment is not favorable before you, I have paid the entire tuition for you to graduate into holiness and purity with God and eternal life. And if you will come and embrace me on my terms, I will move you one day through all the struggle and through all the tears and through all the difficulty. I will guide you one day to complete and total purity. That day is coming. And Jesus had paid the tuition to reach 
that graduation day. There is hope in Jesus Christ, and there's only hope in Jesus Christ. What do I do with it? And come to him on his terms. He simply says, repent and believe the gospel. Repudiate erroneous ideas. Repudiate the flesh. Anything that's keeping you from Christ and his will, reject it like you'd reject a, reject a rattlesnake as a partner and friend. Reject all of that and trust that God loves you enough, demonstrated on the cross and the resurrection, that he will forgive you and invite him in. The Bible says, now watch, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, who's not a whoever? Anyone here who's not a whoever? Is there anyone here that doesn't qualify? That's what God says. And that's his promise, certified by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, stand with me quickly, please, and let's pray. Lord God, you are powerful enough and loving enough to offer hope. And these things that you've said are not mere wishes and not merely admirable desires. In fact, you're the kind of God who can say about the future, nationally and personally, that what has happened is what you've planned and it will be as you have decided. So this morning, you can offer a real transforming hope to all who struggle. And Lord God, some are very weary today with these struggles. They're out with bare feet on hot sand. They're walking across and have been walking across a long desert. And the sun is burning and blistering their brow. And oh God, they're thirsty for relief. And I want to pray that they'll find it by trust in you. And that you would assure them they can be washed sanctified, justified today. That can happen to you. The Lord Jesus wants to be your very very best friend and walk through all of it with you. So we're going to sing a song and give you an opportunity to meet that resurrected power in Christ. Our staff will be standing here in the front. And whether the issues we've talked about today are your issues or maybe something else, why don't you come? We'll not assume that because you come forward today that you struggle with verses 9 through 10. We're, we don't do that. We don't assume that. You come for any reason today. Maybe to become part of Beach Haven, follow the Lord in some way. But if you need help today, we want to help you with that. And our staff will be standing here waiting for you. Why don't you come? And let's now sing together. Would you come?